0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
3: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Annalena Kamenetsky from Touch Capital, a venture growth investment fund focused on consumer products and services companies. Before venture investing, Annalena was a partner at JAB Holdings, a large cap investment firm in the CPG space focused on roll-up strategies in beverages, food, personal care cosmetics, and pet care, where she helped build the second largest coffee company in the world. Annalena also spent eight years in investment banking at Goldman Sachs focused on media and tech and 5 years in private equity focused on operational restructurings in Asia. Touch Capital partners with emerging brands including Super Coffee, The Coconut Collaborative, Credo Foods, Emmy Fuzzy, Catalina Crunch, Lesser Evil, and Haven's Kitchen. Welcome, Annalena. Hi, Alison. hi this is like this we have these calls and I'm like hi guys and you're like hi Allison you know (laughs) what are you gonna tell me this month um well the good news is this this discussion we're having isn't me reporting to you in any way I get to just ask you lots of questions so um I'm very happy that you are finally on I've been trying to get you on here for a while Thank you so much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah. And so it goes, I just want to, before we start talking about investing in all of that, it it is a weird time uh, right now in this country. And I think that, um, you know, it feels strange to just kind of be going along and acting like everything's sort of normal because the world around us, regardless of your beliefs about anything is just, I think a little bit crazy feeling. And I would say that, you know, there's just a ton of uncertainty, um, around everyone. And so I think it's worthwhile to have someone like you who, I don't know, you're a bit of a, um, steady ship, I feel like in a sea of kind of craziness, um, on here. And I think that it's going to be really helpful for people who are, you know, we hear a lot of things, guard your cash and be capital efficient and, you know, lower your cost of acquisition and improve your, you know, but I think you're going to be very helpful at actually giving us straightforward, practical advice that we can, you know, we can't control the world around us, but we can try to at least control our companies a little bit better. Um, So I just, I want to thank you. um, And I'm just really looking forward to this conversation.
4: Well, thank you very much for for uh, characterizing me as a steady ship in in the wild
1: seas. I
4: think that's what I mark to live up to. No, (laughs) but but you especially when I especially when I look at all the all what's going on currently in the world. I mean certainly agree that there's a lot of uncertainty. But I, I I'm glad that you see it that way because I think that's actually one of the uh one of the things a, a good investor in 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 a venture and growth company should be is to to uh, you know to be a a shoulder so to say to to lean on and uh, and give advice in uh in in bad times and good times so to say
1: yeah um, and, and, provide and that, that advice stability. Yep. so
4: yeah i'm i'm glad that that, uh, that that has come across
1: yes it has and i think also you know um Advice in crazy times can sometimes feel, you know, um, like the, you know, uh oh, we're, you know, now you got to do this, uh oh, now you got to go this way, and and that's the steady ship piece that's so helpful Mm. with you is that it's just it's, it's steady. You don't seem particularly moved around by you know, wildly good or even like strangely not good um stuff because it seems to me like there's a little bit of I've seen this, I've seen worse, I've seen better. <laughs> like this is just <laughs> par for the course, and you're on the course with us. Um and and so on that note, um let's just start with a couple of, you know, straightforward, I think, tactical moves right now in the current environment that we're in that you would just sort of blanket, regardless of what the company is doing or the, you know, selling or the size or the team, like what are just a couple of overarching principles that you would say will be helpful to emerging brands in the next 12 to 18 months?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I think the the most important uh, advice that uh, I think is, is relevant for everybody right now is to just have as much cash as possible, so to say, to make sure you can weather the storm for the next 12, 18 months, uh, no matter how exactly it's going to turn out, because mm-hmm. I think nobody really knows where we are going from here. And so <clears throat> I think um, on both sides, yeah, a... If you can raise more cash right now through extension rounds, through saves or convertibles, uh, I would definitely advise to do that. Um, the the upside, obviously, of using those tools that I just mentioned is that you don't necessarily set valuation at this point, which is, mm-hmm. is not a great point to do it. Right. Yeah. But so if you can just kind of use the old one or if you can agree with your um Existing shareholders uh that you that you do a save or convertible, I think um that uh, that is obviously helpful um, and, so and just, just on that yeah. note,
1: sorry, in mm-hmm. your estimation, you know i've heard I've heard a couple of things where there are there is actually a lot of good investor money that is looking right now at good opportunities to invest. It's not as if everyone's just decided to close up shop and there, you know, no one's investing. I I mean, is that your, you know, it's not all gloom and doom when it comes to raising money. It just might not be as quick and it might not be as easy. Is that your impression?
4: Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm signing a transaction actually, Either today or tomorrow. So, right. uh, no, definitely, investors are continuing to invest. Uh, I think there are certainly a couple of funds that that aren't right now, but there are definitely uh, sufficient investors out there who want to invest in high quality businesses. I think right. the bigger uh, difference is is what I just had said in high quality businesses. I think yeah. in the last years, you know, uh, I think almost every business got funding. Mm-hmm. Um uh, even if there wasn't a, a, a real uh, they're, they're. Uh, kind of business model they're there there. Right. And there may never really be one. I think um investors are more um uh careful around that and are more looking really, okay, what what is the outcome here? What can be the margin structure, what what is the overall growth potential, how much investment is really needed. So I think um, people are more careful and more considerate. But I see that actually as a good thing, both for investors as well as companies. And so I don't think at all that there's everything is gloom and doom. Um, but I do think it's much more difficult to raise capital now, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that uh, there is a, uh, certainly a, a more valuation discipline. Right. I would say, to, yeah. is the way to, to, to uh, characterize it.
1: Yeah, and I had um, Mike Gelbon last week from the Consumer VC, and we were talking about something sort of similar, and it does feel like the funds are continuing to invest because that's what they do. But maybe some of the individuals that were having fun investing in, you know, brands that they liked or friends of friends or whatever, that seems to have slowed down. It, it seems like the, the sort of, I can, I can find enough people to, to put, you know, $50,000 into this kind of thing might not be happening quite as much that the funds that are meant to sort of do this professionally are still doing it. And maybe fewer sort of individuals and People aren't necessarily putting together those SPVs the way they were, you know. That's that's my impression. Would you agree?
4: Um, yes, I would. So to to a certain degree, I mean, again, if it's really just individuals, that's that's probably not a great time to go out and and look for money. But um, mm-hmm. but I think if you look at family offices or so, I mean, they they are certainly also continuing to invest. But I think right. even on the fund side, there are I know of several funds who have just said we're not going to do anything for the next. Four to six months period. Yeah. So, wow. um, so I think uh you know but but those are probably also more funds that are less consumer, more tech or maybe mm-hmm. some sort of consumer that uh, sorry tech that went into consumer right and uh, and who are more taking the sidelines because they say you know valuation is is currently difficult right um and so that comes back to what is the valuation expectation and and is there a a reasonable approach to that from a founder perspective and i think if people are not overly aggressive in terms of valuation, it's, um, it's, uh, there, there's definitely still interest and appetite out there for good businesses.
1: And so speaking of good businesses, so, you know, the question was sort of, it started with preserving cash and, you know, making sure to, to raise if you need to and getting that, you know, getting that runway sort of solidified. And then you mentioned, you know, sort of the, the high quality business. Um, and you talked about growth potential, and you know, um, you know, path to profitability. I think you might have mentioned. So, what are sort of the criteria that you would say? Again, going back to you know, tactical moves, what we should be doing, how we should reverse engineer these companies to that aren't likely going to be profitable for a little while. You know, as much yeah. as we slash things and grow things. I mean, even for me and, and you know, this, like the margin improvements that we have put in now because of the way that we have to do testing with Cornell and we have to have a, you know, HPP validation study, we're not going to see those on the actual pouches on shelves until February of 23. We did the reformulation for a couple of SKUs in the last, you know, three months. Um, those margin improvements just take some, they just take a while to kind of work their way through the system, whether it's because you need to create a new package and the printing of the labels now takes six months longer than it used to or whatever it is. So there's, there's, there's wins. A lot of the wins are not immediate wins, even if you are being really, really smart and very cautious, Um, you know, so, what else are the things? I guess it's sort of a double question, on the on the operation side and on the spending side, perhaps um, that that would be that we can be doing right now to make us viable and attractive. Yeah. I guess.
4: Yeah, 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 no. I mean, absolutely understood that many um things take a time to to implement and to kind of show its results but that still doesn't mean that uh, now is the right time to actually do them so i think mm-hmm. the the overall it's it's really a go line item by line item exercise and uh, and look if every dollar is working as hard as it could yep. and should yeah mm-hmm. and some of these benefits will only come through in a couple of months or even only next year, and others are more immediate. But I think the exercise still, you know, is is a helpful one for everybody. Um, I mean, I one uh, uh, colleague I used to work with always says never, never waste a good crisis uh, because you can really (laughs) reset your business uh, to a different profitability level. And I think that's really what needs to be done and and what's in the end helpful. Um, Obviously, the easiest thing to cut is always marketing. And that is pretty much immediate but that obviously has the, has the downside that you will see it in your, in your, in your growth. Right. Um, but you know, if it's, if it's necessary to uh, survive, then that needs to be done. Yeah. And, right. um, and I think even there, what, uh, what uh, I find with many of the companies that I work with is that it's not only about necessarily cutting, but really reshifting and really mm-hmm. look very hard at what, what type of marketing brings us what in terms of return, because I think a lot of businesses have seen over the last years, a shift away from a Facebook to a TikTok, et cetera, et cetera, and have not necessarily really fully implemented that shift as much as they could have. Um, And so really just saying, okay, we, we, we have now a smaller budget and let's really make sure we spend that uh, where it where it yields the best results, um I think that's that's an exercise that's certainly worthwhile for for everybody independently yeah. almost of the crisis, but the crisis is, so to say a good a trigger to go through that exercise
1: yeah i mean i I happen to find it really fun and satisfying because you know you have all these lines and I'm like, wait what's that one thing for what like what subscription is that? You know everyone on my team loves it when I do that. But, um, right. but this leads me to another question because it is something that came up with us, um, not you and me, but my team and me. And, you know, we were talking about a, a sales hire and in a way I've heard, I mean, I've heard, I think you guys have said it to me. A few other investors have said it to me. Um, there's a difference between an expense and like an investment investment. And, you know, oh, while, yes. <laughs> right. You know, but you know what I mean? Like, but even just like, like big, like big picture to me, mm-hmm. spending on another salary feels like, well, why would I add to my overhead right now if I don't need to? On the other hand, that person theoretically in the sales role should more than make their overhead back in what they produce for the company. So do you, do you, do you hear this a lot, or do you think about this or do other founders have this, or is this just a me thing where, you know, my, when I hear preserve cash and be as efficient and go line by line, I'm just thinking like cut, 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 cut. cut. Um, but there are some things that we, that aren't necessarily just like cut, but that maybe require a little more nuance than that. And sales, does come up as as that like have you have am I the only person who's shared that confusion with you um,
4: let's put it this way I mean certainly kind of one of the blanket exercises and quotation marks is certainly a hiring freeze yeah that you say okay we, we're not taking anybody new on but I mm-hmm. agree with you that all of these blanket um measures obviously need to have the ability to uh, you know, to adapt and adjust for a specific good reason. And I think right. a head of sales or <clears throat> even a just general salesperson can be that reason. Yep. If uh, if if there's a very clear case why that is 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 worth it in this current environment. And I think, yeah. um, you know, especially in 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 young companies, um Sales is often a position where you know you you may not have yet a a person who really brings the experience to the table that's needed, and that person can make all the difference in terms mm-hmm. of actually uh, not only generating a lot of additional sales but also maybe um saving significant cash flows or right. costs because this person can position you better with the buyer and you maybe have less tradesmen because of this or yeah uh, no you know I, get the, the demand uh, plan. I mean, honestly,
1: when we hired our head of sales, the first thing she did was, you know, on the, uh, like the savings part, you know, the, the the making a hub and spoke model with UNFI rather than what we were doing. Like there's so much to sales that isn't just making the sale. Um, and uh, you know, who knows that when you first get into this, it's, yeah, it, that's the smallest part of it almost.
4: Yeah. So yeah. I think for me you know if you get somebody who's really experienced in the field that you're looking for and you currently don't have these capabilities mm-hmm. these are probably really investments right. that are very worthwhile yeah another uh, another area where where I often see um young companies kind of being suboptimal <clears throat> is mm-hmm. to really have a good finance and planning person mm. um and because of that missing person you know you suddenly end up with inventory that you can sell can't sell and mm-hmm. maybe with no inventory of things that could have sold and um you know it, it just or or a lot of kind of manual ways uh, that that could all be automated et cetera, et cetera. so i think you know it, it's yes, conserving cash, but, but in a, it's not necessarily everything. It's not a cookie cutter approach. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about finance for a second, um, that is the one, you know, again, I can only really use my company and a couple of the companies that I, you know, I'm friends with the founders and have sort of behind the scenes looks at, but finance definitely seems to be sort of the last, if you think about the buckets, you know, there's ops and there's sales and there's marketing and there's finance. And then there's all this like stuff in between, you know, that kind of gets lost. And then eventually you hire those people, but the finance piece is, is definitely the one that a lot of people are trying to figure out. And a lot of us have outsourced finance teams and that's broken down into accounting and bookkeeping. And then there's like a, you know, planning and analysis piece, which is very hard to do outsourced because you're just not really in the business as much. And it, 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 on the flip side, it tends to be the last thing that we kind of bring in-house because it's sort of, it feels like we can kind of skate by without it. Do you, have you seen that the ones that bring it in earlier, I know this is a, a really productive question, but do you feel like as a rule, maybe we're bringing that piece into our businesses too late and we shouldn't sort of put it in fourth place when it comes to hiring?
4: I think it's a really difficult question because I agree it's kind of less important than the others theoretically just to get the ship running, so to say. Mm-hmm. But I think... with the significant supply chain issues broadly speaking over the last years I think that that planning piece in particular um, if it's not done well and you've said yourself it's very hard to outsource that um, that is just very um, costly from a cash perspective for many companies and I've seen now many companies that you know, have have great momentum on the sales side, have a good kind of overall cost structure and interesting margins, but that are really running into trouble because they just can't finance their working capital mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, and and need to take on really, uh, really, really uh, uh, stiffly priced loans and, and other kind of financial uh, uh, obligations to to just scrap by, so to say, and um and then if you then don't have a good planning process uh you're basically investing potentially in the wrong items yeah right. which almost always is the case with these companies then too that they realize okay we ordered too much of SKU number you know XYZ and and that doesn't actually sell but the other one we didn't have enough and then if things come get, get even worse, then they lose the uh, lose that shelf because they didn't have the right item, et cetera, right. et cetera. And so it can very quickly become a really big issue. I think in the past, um, when when we didn't have these supply chain uh, disruptions, <clears throat> it was probably the right decision to put this last and outsource it as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think now with these, uh, with these very long lead times Mm -hmm. and as a consequence, really high um, cash needs for working capital, um, you know, it's, it's something to, to, to reconsider.
1: Yeah. It really feels like, I mean, you, you've been, you've been watching companies in companies, leading companies, buying companies for, many years. Um, Is this, have you seen something like this kind of, you know, perfect storm of all of these crazy kind of things happening at the same time? Like, is this truly as weird and disruptive as it feels like. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't really have much to compare it to. I got harder, but I also feel like our business is relatively simple. And, you know, fortunately, we're not doing procurement of 56 ingredients like some of my friends are. But I, (laughs) you know, is it, have you seen this? Any, what's the closest thing you've seen to this? have you seen
4: Uh, anything for me me it was definitely the 2008 crisis and Mm -hmm. as you mentioned in the intro I mean I was restructuring businesses in Japan at the time Mm -hmm. and some of these were you know automotive supply businesses that literally within a couple of months lost half of their revenues wow and uh, and those are automotive supply is a business where you have razor thin margins to begin with mm-hmm. and every year pre-agreed cost reductions with your customers so it's really it's a very very tough business mm-hmm. uh, so these businesses basically were all at the brink of bankruptcy and you know and we had to go through exactly this line by line like what's really what is necessary what can be cut I mean we were with some of the companies it was literally uh, you had to implement things like every expense over five dollars you need to go to the CEO and ask basically. Wow. Yeah. Which of course right. nobody does and then and then there aren't any big expenses. I mean I'm right. I'm exaggerating a right. little bit, but, no, but actually yeah. not that much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um so you know, yes, I've been through very difficult times and very difficult sectors before. I think what's different this time is that you, you know you you kind of the economy is actually currently not yet really doing actually badly. yeah. But right. you have a lot of inflationary pressures. So your costs are going up and you're kind of fearing that that it'll end in a recession. And yep. then, you know, then you have a, a top line that you don't know exactly what it's going to do and, and your costs have gone up. And so, you know, I think that's kind of the difficulty at this moment that a lot of companies, especially young ones, feel that they are standing. You know, they're kind of on a treadmill, but don't go anywhere. So, you know, whatever progress they make on the cost Mm -hmm. saving side is immediately eaten up by inflation. And then they are staying there with the same margin as they had before.
1: Yeah. No, I think yeah. that's a really, really
4: good so, way to put it. Yeah. So, so I don't know if if that's how you feel, but but that's at least what I get from a lot of the companies I work with. That they like, man, we we made all these adjustments, and but our margin is actually the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, or I th- or something th- random happens that or you something know, random happens exactly away at you, that margin that you exactly. just like worked so hard to get. Exactly. You know, exactly.
4: Yeah. And at the same time, I think what what they also see is the cash conversion cycle it's becoming longer and longer because of this crazy supply chain that you need to order earlier mm-hmm. and earlier, mm-hmm. yeah, and, but still get paid at the same rate as before. And so suddenly what used to be maybe a two to three month cycle is suddenly a six to eight month cycle, which you need to finance. Yeah, um, that's, that's um, And so I think too. from my perspective, um, what I see slowly starting already and I don't know if you see that yet in your business but I think um, some businesses are already starting to see it and I see it kind of more from a macro perspective is that I think that um, customer acquisition costs are probably going to come down quite a bit because a lot of companies have cut marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, I would expect that hiring is going to become easier mm-hmm. as I think a lot of companies have started to make redundancies. Mm-hmm. And so I would hope that at least some of the inflationary pressures are going to ease up a little bit. Right. And, and yeah. then there's still of course the uncertainty around okay, what's going to happen to my top line. And I think there um you know you you almost need to do a little bit the same analysis going line by line and and really think of what 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 are my core products um and how can i make sure that they are really offering great value for money for your consumers because yep. in case we are going into a uh into a recessionary environment and maybe we aren't and then you know we all uh, that's all upside mm-hmm. um <laughs> but if we are i think What at least I've seen in the past is it's it's not necessary that consumers go for the cheaper item, but they certainly look for value for money, Mm -hmm. and um, and so I think just making sure that your products are being perceived as good value, which doesn't which is not the same as being cheap.
1: Yep, hundred percent. Just showing the value is is that is important. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask you about sales channels while we're talking about this. And we'll be right back.
3: Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier or a special spice set from burlap and barrel. By becoming a member you will play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air go to heritageradionetwork.org/ donate to become a member today Thank you for your support
2: I'm Chava Perivan co-host of agave road trip on HRN here to talk about 818 tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow, to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of One Percent for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as SACRED, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
3: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app.
1: I'm back with Annalena Kamineski from Touch Capital. Um, Okay, so before the break, we were talking about, you know, the line-by-line sort of analysis, the looking at the top line. I want to just stay on top line for a second because I was having a conversation with another founder and, you know, there are some accounts um, you know, big retailer accounts that are, let's just say less margin accretive than others, right? They all kind of have their own little different margins, depending on kind of what you have to spend there, what you turn there. Some of them are a little bit more of a marketing channel. Some of them are just like, you know, just pure, just sales, sales, sales. Um, Have you seen any companies or do you think it's worth exploring on our end saying, you know what, this is an account that is nice to have and it looks good and I get to rattle it off and make an announcement, but at the end of the day, it's kind of hurting my margins and even though the top line is is okay, it's not actually doing much for the bottom line. Are you seeing anyone just sort of saying no to retailers? um mm,
4: not not broadly speaking but Mm -hmm. i think um i think there are definitely businesses that will start doing that and and quite frankly should start doing that right i think if if you if you are in a position <clears throat> where where really something only adds to your top line doesn't add anything to your bottom line, I mean obviously it depends on where you stand with your business. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're at a size where you know you say you're you're really uh, you're now really focusing on getting the bottom line also in shape and not only at the t- not only the top line, then I think these are these are fair. Right. Discussions to have and questions to ask, and maybe there is an opportunity to improve that um, right. with the with the respective uh, retailer. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think there, you know, s- the last several years have been like even though we've talked about core and then more and really focusing and winning the natural channel and then winning, you know, moving from natural into the progressive conventional and then into mass and all that, there have been some leapfrogging, right? Like brands are getting courted by some of these bigger retailers and it's exciting. And, you know, and I don't think that everyone realizes how expensive they are to stay in there. Um, Mm -hmm. Or to, or to do a good job launching there or to merchandise correctly there or to support the marketing programs that they expect you to there. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I just, it's okay. Sometimes if you're like, you know, this channel, even though it's a quote unquote sales channel, we're really thinking of it as awareness. We're not going to make much margin. It's definitely going to pull down the gross margin a little bit, but it's worth it because it's such a stamp of approval or because it, you know, it's, it's such an exciting account or it's such a good signal or it builds awareness and builds the brand in a way. And that felt kind of like that works when, when all, all is well, but I don't know. I'm kind of starting to think like, do we want to open some of these doors that are potentially coming our way that maybe not be as strong for the bottom line because we want to get to the point where we're in these stores and these accounts. And on the flip side, obviously the volume does help us a lot, you know, with pallet configurations and freight costs and things like that. But it's, it's just an interesting thing that I've been thinking about a little bit lately. And I'm wondering if you've seen, or you have any thoughts on, but it seems like maybe it's just a real case by case basis.
4: I think that's a case by case basis because yeah. again I mean as you mentioned yourself there's a volume point there's a freight point there's right. an awareness point <clears throat> and and you basically just need to see you know would I is that awareness if I would put that money into marketing would it bring me more awareness or less mm-hmm. yeah and and just really go through it in quite a methodological pers- uh, uh, order and 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 see if if you end up in a in a positive place or not i mean, think yeah. what i've seen more is less this this kind of should we be in this retailer at all or not i think what i've seen more is um people taking a harder look at um uh at uh, at specific products and maybe right. just cutting some products that mm-hmm. you know where where maybe okay but not that great actually, and yeah. if you add everything up <clears throat> between trade spend and and time the team needs to spend of the, on them, etc., mm-hmm. etc., cetera, et cetera, wasn't weren't really additive. I know. So we I just let go of
1: my one of my favorites. She we sent her out to pasture. <laughs> the harissa <laughs> is no longer with us for the time being, but you know we're hoping she's coming back in another form at some point.
4: Exactly. Um, exactly. yeah,
1: I mean you know we um it's, and I think what I'm liking from the conversation here is that you're going line by line. And this is something I think really interesting. We're used to going line by line on the costs of things side, right? We go through marketing and we go through, you know, overhead and do we really need to spend on the, but we don't necessarily do it as well on the sales side of things, right? Like, what does the, what is this account actually bringing us? How does the trade spend actually work for this account? Like we, I don't know that that many of us are able to dissect. And this is why like I've been this like trade spend by account mantra for mm-hmm. a while. And, and candidly, we just haven't been able to get there yet. I think we will, you know, shortly. Um, But I think what you're saying is go through not only where you're spending money, but go through where you're making money, too, or where you think you're making money. And just just make sure that you are actually, whether it's by product, by SKU, by account, by region, by DC, whatever it is, just start really looking into everything.
4: Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that the last point you just made, where you th- you where you're making money, or where you think you're making money, right? Yeah, because I think when you go through that exercise, um, what some companies find is that there literally are accounts where they are actually not making any money. Yeah, between you know uh, things that uh, that are always kind of uh, you know between tradesmen and then. Uh, what they've built, but got actually paid and et cetera et cetera there there's really a big big difference um between accounts and and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily always the fault of of the account yet it could also right. be kind of on on the own side uh, on the on the company's own mm-hmm. uh, side where where things are overlooked and and so I think that's a very very important um exercise because especially when you just start out um trade spend is a huge is a huge cost block usually? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think in the last years, when everybody was so focused on only top line and um, and didn't necessarily people didn't look much at the bottom line. I think people also started to look only at gross sales rather than mm-hmm. at net sales. Yeah. Yeah. And and that has, for me at least, always been kind of a a, a weird concept because in right. the end you know it doesn't doesn't really help me what i have is growth sales really my starting point is net sales yeah um and so i think that that's really something where I, I think some some companies and 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 founders and teams just need to re rethink
1: yeah no i'm i i'm i'm excited i i feel like i have an exercise ready for the rest of the week um <laughs> so so now going back a little bit you know, to your work as a, you know, large cap corporate, um, you know, someone who looked at companies, bigger companies, like a lot of what we're trying to do now, the emerging brands, you know, we don't want to, we want to get to that, you know, 75, 100, if we can. And we do want to most likely build toward an exit in the next several years. Most of us, are not building family businesses. We were trying to build these things so that they are acquirable. Are there any sort of big picture do's and don'ts? Like if you want to be acquired in five years, these are a few things that you should not do because it will make it harder for you to sell the company. Or these are some things that are good to put in place now because it will make it easier for you when you are in that position. And I know it's early for a lot of people, but it's it's just, you know, I like to reverse engineer, as I said. And, you know, the idea of putting in things now as a foundation that will make things easier and work better in the future. I just would love to hear sort of your perspective from that side of things.
4: Hmm. I think it's a it's a it's quite a difficult question. I mean, I would say primarily the 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 best way to probably get there is to really just focus on building a a clear profitable business model which has a you know uniqueness or or only less and a a real differentiation point I think in the end um uh, and I'm trying to get more specific than that. No worries. No, that's helpful. Um, but yeah. uh, but but you know you can only reverse engineer so much, mm-hmm. and so I think in the end, really, you need to build a business for the going concern, uh, rather than okay, I can bring this to five years, and then I'm kind of falling off the cliff if I don't get bought. Right. And right. the reason why I'm saying this is that I a think lot don't get bought <laughs> when I yeah when I think when I look at some of the businesses that have kind of also even become very, very big over the mm-hmm. last years. I you know, I've I've kind of always looked at them and thought, okay, so w- how is this ever going to really work on a standalone basis? Right. Um and uh and I think some of them just don't, yeah. And I think right. that's just a risky that's a risky proposition because you basically you basically have to bet on being bought. And right. um and so you know I think um so, again, kind of having a, a uniqueness that really differentiates you and a business model that stands on its own, I think, is is core and is already kind of a, a big and, and good starting point. I think in terms of things to avoid, um, what I've seen a lot of uh, companies do is that I think um, – They some uh, I I see sometimes very long term uh, agreements and contracts Mm -hmm. where I really feel like you're uh, not the first person that has said that on here. It's very uh, interesting. Yeah. And it's just that I've really seen that a number of times now. And I really wonder if if founders in the beginning, it just don't get very good legal advice. But um, we take what we can get.
1: I think yeah, a lot and, of it is with the like the the local and the regional distribution. The distributors, especially, they want those exclusives and they want the five years and they want you know to charge you twelve yeah, but months of it whatever. From everything from yeah.
4: financings to you right. know. Investments to suppliers to distributors. Yeah. really, where I would say, you know, what these are, these are almost terms that I think a serious business person shouldn't even ask for. Right. You uh, let alone get. Yeah. Um. And so I think, uh, you know, if there's some extremes like that, um, uh, and and especially there for a very long time, that uh, that can can certainly kind of be mm-hmm. a little bit of a hiccup. I think the other point that uh, uh some people don't pay enough attention to is that they actually kind of own their brand and have 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 really uh, kind of made sure that they protect uh, mm-hmm. not only the brand name but also kind of the look and feel of right. the brand and and all of these things,
1: yeah. So I want to make um, a plug for a couple of months ago everyone listening I had on my trademark attorney um, I don't remember what the name of the episode is, but her name's Amanda Roach. And so if you're listening to this and you want to queue up the next episode <laughs> to listen to, I had her on. I've never met anyone. I think I might have told you about her, Annalena. I've literally never met anyone that loves their job as much as she loves trademark attorneying, if that's <laughs> okay. the right word. She's a copyright fanatic. She loves trade dress. She loves protecting emerging brands. And she said on that show that most of her work is actually on the investor side, looking at companies who have been operating for years that don't own their trademark, that haven't protected their trade dress, that haven't, you know, done the trademark in Europe, for example, or, you know, and she's like, there's so many avoidable mistakes that brands make just because they don't, they don't really understand how important the name is or the, or, you know, or those, or those trademarks are. Um, so on, um, I just wanted to clue everyone in that we have had an expert on this show and you can go back and listen to her. She's also just, she's infectious. Uh, she just loves it so much. And she, <laughs> it's like, she, I'm just, she was just like, so excited to talk about all this stuff and it's like legal and it's about, you know, the, the PTO or whatever it is, you know, it's not, um, it's not what some would consider a party in a podcast, but we had a good time talking about it. Okay, so fantastic. Yes. I, but yes. to
4: it. I haven't, but I will. No, okay. she's
1: fantastic. So, um, yeah. Anyway, great. owning the brand, owning the great. copy, trying to protect yourself as much as possible and, and make it yeah. so that you're, you're owning something that is viable. Yeah, that it's it's viable and
4: and again, right. kind of really be really having a clear and unique positioning, um, um, because I think a lot of a lot of the operational kind of improvements, et cetera, et cetera, that one could do, or I mean, <clears throat> big companies that that uh, that are kind of potential acquirers can can fix those. They can but handle that. What they're not going to want to fix is, you know, your Uh, the excitement of your user base and your, you know, I mean, that thing really needs to be fantastic. Yeah. Your brand needs to be fantastic. Your, your consumers need to love you, et cetera, et cetera, because that's in the end really what they are buying. Um, And, uh, and, and so kind of making sure that you have a clear, a clear capability there and a clear uniqueness and positioning, I think is, 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 is cool. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I think for those of us who are you know founders i I don't think most of us would be doing what we were doing if we didn't think we had something unique, you know, if we didn't think that we had something lovable um I wish that there was a way for us to ask each other without without all of our feelings getting hurt, you know, like is it really unique? You know what I mean? Like we all think, it's like, you know, you, you think your kid is the smartest kid in the class when, you know, the teacher's (laughs) like, well, you know, yeah, he's bright, (laughs) but you know, you, we, it's because it's so exhausting and you're, and you're pushing it and you're selling it and you have to believe. And I, I see people around me that, you know, I love, and they should probably try to Leave while the music's playing a little bit, you know. Because- yeah, but
4: I think that's that's a fair kind of question, and, and I think something that if you don't want to ask your friends and get their input, I mean, just sit down and do a competitive analysis. Right. Look at who are my. I mean, that you need to anyway do. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you don't know who your competition is and what they are doing, I mean, that's I would say an an, an issue anyway. So yeah. I think sitting sitting yourself down and and really mapping out. Your, your competitive landscape and what everybody else is doing and what you are doing. I mean, and you, if you realize you are the, I don't know, 30th yes. yeah. uh, alternative uh, almond milk or something, then, you know, maybe it's not that unique after, after yeah. all.
1: No, that's a really good point. I think the the lesson of this podcast episode is sit down and just take a good hard look at everything, you know? all of it. Um, because chances are that the things that there's stuff glaring out at you, it's not like this stuff is hard to find. So to that end, what would be the number one thing you would be looking for in an investor? And what would be the number one thing that you would consider a red flag? Hmm. Um, I mean, steady ship. Let's put, steady ship. Sorry, steady, <laughs> steady, steady
4: ship. <laughs> steady ship. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, it's in the end the number one thing you always look in a, in a look for an investor is money. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But um, I think, I think it's it's really important to kind of see how, how, is the, how, how is kind of the, the, the personal relationship with the, with the person on the other side with whom you're going to deal on a regular mm-hmm. basis, um, uh, getting a sense for um, how they generally work with companies that they're invested in. And I mean, maybe there's even the opportunity to potentially speak with some other founders who've worked with them before. Mm-hmm.
1: That's not outrageous um, for us to ask. By the way, right? I mean, that's, no, it's reasonable for and, us. To and
4: ask. Uh, exactly, and and you know, I think that's that's kind of a, a great, obviously, if you can do that, mm-hmm. um, because I think in the end, what you want is exactly that steady ship. Yeah, you want somebody mm-hmm. who's there <laughs> if you if you ask for advice, but you also want to avoid that you have somebody who calls you like three times a week and constantly yeah. has an opinion on something. And maybe has or doesn't have the capabilities actually to to have that opinion, yeah. And right. uh, because that can be really dis- distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's something to really look out
1: for. Um, I, I that's mean, both ideally, the, if you the, the good thing and the red flag, yeah.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think you ideally want somebody who has something to add other than money, um, yeah. but who also kind of understands that they're not running the company you are. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. Um, and Amazing. and who can who who kind of have has that uh, uh you know can 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 differentiate between that yeah um i think probably not so much at the beginning because um you know at the beginning check sizes are relatively small but i think once you're larger and that really goes to kind of some of the experiences that i saw in the last couple of years i think now it's not so much the case anymore anyway but in the last couple of years i was sometimes shocked how some investors wrote like literally big 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 checks i mean i'm talking several tens of millions of dollars oh wow uh with like very little like with a couple of days uh, in wow, terms of diligence. Right. Yeah. yeah. and so i think i mean that may sound great um at the beginning you know if you're on the mm-hmm. receiving end as a founder but i think these are probably also the funds that are now really you know, not in a very good place. And mm-hmm. then that also has an impact on you as a founder. Yeah, uh, I think that's so, such a good point. I mean, yeah. that I I was really surprised. I don't think that that's probably such a big issue now anymore. But in the last years, I was really sometimes, you know, working with, uh, working kind of together with larger funds, and, and we were interested in a deal. And then suddenly, they said, oh, you know, we're, they actually already did it with somebody else. And I was like, what we, we, but we only just started. I mean, it was like, we only three days in this. And they're like, (laughs) yeah, the other ones just kind of went ahead and did it.
1: But that, you know, I think, I think the point really for those of us on the other side of that is that we don't really think of funds or investors as businesses that can be well or not very well run we don't really think of it that way. You know what I mean? It's, it's an interesting Mm -hmm. perspective because, you know, they're evaluating how well I run my business. We should also be evaluating how well they run their business. And if, if it takes them a minute to do due diligence, chances are they're not running their business particularly well. That's a really great point. Okay. Well, that's a really great way to end the discussion. Um, Annalena, thank you so much for coming on the show this was a really great conversation and i have a lot thank you so much for having homework uh homework to do um armin as always thank you for engineering today's show and all the shows um next week is july 4th so i will not be here um but i will be back the following week with another episode of in the sauce thanks for listening